0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Asmir Begovich of Everton, whose team is visiting the U.S. this week. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage in Monterey, Mexico, of the CONCACAF Women's World Cup qualifying tournament. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Asmir Begovich in segment two. But let's bring in Witty. How are you, my
1: friend? At the uh, end of a delirious weekend of Major League Soccer, had two games on the Saturday. And uh, it's been it's been brilliant. So let's, uh, let's let's get into it.
0: Lots to talk about here, but let's start with the women's game. The U.S. has qualified for next year's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Only took two games to do it, which is due partly to the U.S. thrashing Haiti and Jamaica, partly due to Mexico completely not showing up here at their own tournament. And as a result, the U.S. is in after just two games. That's partly due to as or to the 32-team Women's World Cup. That's expanded, so CONCACAF has more slots. I'm still here in Monterey uh, ahead of the U.S. playing Mexico on Monday night. But not a heck of a lot to say here, except Sophia Smith, very, very good in the 5-0 against Jamaica. And I think making a, a, a real sort of move up in the the echelon of the U.S. women's national team as she does at club level with Portland Thorns.
1: Yeah, and she's been in the team since 2020, despite only being 21 years of age. So an incredibly young player who's already won you know close to 20 caps. Uh, I've seen her a few times in NWSL play uh, as part of a, a really good Portland Thorns team. And yeah, she's emerged and it's part of a new generation of players. And this is what U.S. fans can really be excited about going forward. As we knew that the team that won the World Cup in Canada and won the World Cup in 2019 is a really damn good team, but there's got to be another generation as well as, as you're you know, watching the women's Euros, there's a bunch of women's team in Europe uh, that are doing a tremendous job of developing players at club level and then that funnels to international team level. I think Europe is going to be incredibly formidable in international tournaments to come both the Olympics and the Women's World Cup, and the U.S. has to continue to bring through players. The college system is what we've got for now. It's got to continue to churn out players because otherwise we're going to fall behind because these are incredibly well-financed clubs that can put together incredible academies really at the snap of a finger. So if other teams are going to become more competitive, you need to start seeing new players come through, and that's why a player like Sophia Smith playing this well, Trinity Rodman as well, had a good performance in this uh, W Championship as well, and... It's really important for players that young to pr- to offer what the next generation of U.S. women's players is.
0: Well, in Trinity, Robin barely spent any time in college, and Sophia Smith spent a couple years at Stanford, which has become a buzzsaw at the collegiate level, producing players like Katarina Macario as well. And they've been producing good players for a long time, like Kristen Press, Kelly O'Hara, others, Julie Foudy, for that matter. But it seems like Stanford's taken a leap upward in producing really top talent for the national teams, even if they may not get them for the entire four years, that seems also to be a trend. But I wanted to get your sense of a quote to me from Alex Morgan the other day for the story I wrote for my site where Morgan's in a great run of form. And she said it was, actually she considers it the best form of her career when you combine what she's doing in the NWSL with San Diego and what she's doing with the national team. But on this topic of has Europe, have European players passed the U.S. by, she thought it was, quote, ridiculous to this notion that when you look at the top 50 players in the world list on ESPN and there's only six Americans on it and just one in the top 10 or the most recent Guardian top 100 list where there are only three U.S. players in the top 50, None in the top 19, by the way. You know, Morgan wanted to remind everyone, we've won the last two World Cups, which I think is a legitimate point. And I do think when you're talking about these lists, it's a little harder for the U.S. because so many of the U.S. players, and Morgan pointed this out, are playing in the United States, not playing at the European club level, not playing in Champions League. A couple are, like Lindsey Horan and Macario. But... uh, I do buy a little bit into her sort of like, what's this about? This is kind of ridiculous.
1: Well, I think there's a couple of things at play here. One, I think this only for me further highlights the need for a some kind of NWSL Champions League joint tournament or some kind of Club World Cup at the women's level. I think that would be an incredible tournament to see just how different the standard is between NWSL teams and UEFA Champions League sides that compete at the back end of those tournaments because I think that would really show kind of what the level is between those two entities. But also, I think it does go to show a bit that the U.S. women's player has to perform at a very high level at club level, game in and game out, because if we're measuring performance game in and game out, I do think that there are European-based players that are doing more. Now, in some ways, you know, the NWSL is a league that's based off of parity, and it doesn't seem like most uh, women's European leagues, you know, Barcelona basically win every game 5-0. You know, the uh, English WSL is really a top three, and when other teams get results, those are surprises, whereas there are no real dominant teams in the NWSL uh, really since Paul Riley left North Carolina Courage, obviously for the better. But I do think that you look at uh, the the way in which um, the, the U.S. women's player performs at club level, there is always that emphasis on the national team. There is always the emphasis on being ready for World Cups, being ready for Olympics. And Alex Morgan, if you look at her goal output year in, year out, it's not really of the level of maybe some of the bigger players. And that's not because she's a worse player. It's just because she's prioritizing other things or has runs of fitness issues. But either way, the focus is always about the national team. And I think to regain that standing, if you care about it, uh, it would have to be performing like she is now this season for San Diego Wave.
0: It is interesting because we have seen U.S. women's players go to European clubs and you know, like not start even. So like Tobin Heath was not starting for much of her time at Arsenal. Um, Rose Lavelle was not starting for most of her time at Manchester city. And they're both back in the NWSL, both back on the same team with OLA rain, but, there is some, you know, we've seen some examples of top U.S. women's players going to Europe and not thriving. Now, that said, current European champions at the club level are Lindsay Horan and Katarina Macario, who both start for Lyon. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but uh, maybe it's a it's a fit situation. But it's it's an ongoing story that I think will be interesting to follow over the next year. And also because there's so many big women's tournaments going on right now, including the women's Euros. Uh, I've had fun watching this tournament so far because I think the games have been good. Uh, We're recording this on Sunday right around noontime. And um, I really enjoyed the 1-1 between the Netherlands and Sweden on Saturday. You know, both teams playing at a high level, And I'm getting a little bit flashbacks to the old men's Euros where they only had 16 teams in it. And there were a lot of compelling games in the group stage and more at stake because only two teams advance from a four-team group.
1: Yeah, I've always prefer less, right? And I know that sounds weird, right, from a fan, but Euros with a smaller field are better. There are just fewer games where, you know, you're not hoping that a team offers a competitive game. There will be a competitive game, but... You know, I presume for television rights reasons and for all sorts of reasons, every major tournament has expanded, and it's led to a cheapening of the product. But the women's Euros is still very good, as you mentioned. There haven't really been those lopsided scores. I was uh, listening to a podcast before the Norway Northern Ireland game, where there were concerns about the Northern Ireland team is semi-professional. It hasn't. They've been convenient They've convened in a camp since January to get ready for this tournament, but it's not necessarily a team that is kind of of the standard of a team like Norway and. They scored a goal. They only lost four to one, and so there haven't really been these immensely lopsided games. For me, the the team that I've I've most been interested in is Spain, uh, just because of the Barcelona side and you know how how good they've been. They lost Alexia Putellas, who is uh, and obviously the women's Ballon d'Or winner. So uh, it's it's difficult to see that happen, uh, but. They won 4-1 to on opening day. They conceded the opening goal to Finland, but eventually won 4-1. So they still remain a tournament favorite given the strength of their team. But uh, Spain, for me, are kind of controlling the narrative, particularly after England had a bit of a lackluster start to the tournament, we'll say.
0: Yeah, I, I'm very curious about this Spain team. And that hurts, obviously, when you lose the best player in the world. But uh, whenever I've watched Barcelona... Uh, another midfielder in that team, Aitana Beaumonti has been really good and she was terrific against Finland scored a headed goal, even though she's, I think the smallest player on the field, um, really creative, uh, just fun to watch and has a nose for goal as well. And we'll see how she handles being more of a focal point of that national team. Um, but, uh, yeah, good stuff with, with the women's heroes. I'm, I, I, I enjoy the rhythm of watching games every day. And I think there's several teams that are capable of winning the tournament. So uh, hats off to ESPN also for showing more of the games, making it more prominent this time, uh, which they should have uh, probably done in the past. But here we are. They're doing it now. So I appreciate that. Uh, I do want to talk about a couple other stories here where I am in Monterey at the CONCACAF tournament. Um, Haiti is on track to qualify uh for its first ever Women's World Cup. They upset Mexico 3-0 uh in match day two and just such a great story uh on the field with Haiti and, and what they've done to put themselves in this position. Uh they uh also played the U.S. harder than than most people expected, but now on Monday, if they can get a tie against Jamaica, Haiti will qualify automatically for the World Cup. And even if they lose, they're going to be likely in a position to play for the playoff um, to get there. So uh, maybe we're finally starting to see some non traditional teams, women's teams in CONCACAF.
1: Up their game. It's fundamental. It's fundamental for the growth of the sport around the world that it's not the same teams every time. I actually feel that I feel similarly on the men's side uh, when you know the U.S. struggles at times with you know they don't score a goal against Grenada inside of 60 seconds, and so everything has gone to hell. Like I do, kind of want to envision a world in which every team in Concacaf can offer the U.S. and Mexico a game, and it's obviously very much the same on the women's side because. You know, sometimes there are complaints, oh, you don't grow unless you go to Europe and and play big teams. You don't go and play the best teams in the world. And you want to be able to have that level of competition at home. On, the both, on both the men's side and the women's side. So the fact that Haiti is able to beat Mexico on their home soil suggests that there's some growth there. They're capable of summoning that level of performance. Hopefully the NWSL can offer a pathway and even in the USLW League that's coming soon, hopefully there's a pathway for players in CONCACAF to continue to grow because you want the U.S. to go to this tournament and feel a measure of competition from the teams that are there.
0: The other big story is just how bad Mexico has been. And, you know, here in Monterey, it's supposed to be the women's soccer capital of Mexico, and in um, Mexico was certainly expected to qualify for the World Cup. It's been expanded to 32 teams. There's four spots now, uh, plus the playoff ones from CONCACAF. So absolutely stunning to see Mexico lose at home, first to Jamaica, then to Haiti. Now they're going to play the U.S., I don't think the U.S. is going to take pity on them. And I could see this being yet another loss on Monday night for Mexico, which would mean they would be zero points and out uh, and not make the World Cup, not make the Olympics. And just that would be like an absolutely crushing situation for a country that we had talked about as getting better in the women's game
1: yeah i mean league mx femenil is growing they're getting big crowds in it seems like their their clubs are taking the women's game more seriously which is great uh they have those national training centers but i think what will probably happen in the aftermath of if mexico failed to do anything in this tournament would be a real inquest about what's going on at the fmf right now and what's going on an overall level in Mexican football, because if you think of the losses that the Mexican national team has taken, they have not performed well in World Cup qualifying. They've lost to the U.S. in two tournament finals. Um, this on the women's side, even in the club game on the men's side, uh, finally losing the CONCACAF Champions League. There's been a drop-in level in Mexican football across the board, and I think it's going to lead to bigger questions. in as it relates to this women's national team, it's probably a false dawn. We probably got a little bit too ahead of ourselves. We saw some crowds. We saw a race standard of play at club level. And so you assume that that growth is going to happen quickly, but uh, clearly it's on a longer arc and maybe there are issues at federation level that things have to get solved.
0: Yeah. I mean, clear issues there. The under 20 men's team for, for Mexico failed to qualify recently for the Olympics or the under 20 World Cup. I will say this sort of double jeopardy situation in in this tournament, the women's tournament, in that under-20 tournament where you're qualifying in the same tournament for the Olympics and another global tournament, U-20 World Cup or Women's World Cup, it's a little unfair, I think, that if you're Mexico and you go out on penalties, by the way, against Guatemala. So they didn't even lose in the run of play. And as a result of that penalties loss... Mexico is not going to the Olympics on the men's side. Mexico is not going to the under 20 world cup on, on, uh, the men's side. And I think that's a huge punishment for, for losing on penalties once, but that's where we are. I, I I found out, talked to some people at CONCACAF and basically, um, they felt like given the calendar that's out there, having these single tournaments that qualify you for multiple, global tournaments is something that they kind of needed to do or it was better to do so not sure if you're a Mexico fan you feel that way right now but I thought that was interesting Um, I do want to flip to MLS because this was a big weekend for MLS we had talked about it uh, in the last podcast rivalry week so lots of games uh, with rivalry uh, implications and also you've got some of the new transfers, name transfers coming into the league, making their debuts. So this weekend has been pretty entertaining. And I think that started uh, in many, well, we'll talk about LAFC LA later uh, here, but Portland three, Seattle nil in Seattle pretty crazy result.
1: Yeah, especially when you consider how Seattle tried to turn that into a massive landmark day in the history of their club <laughs> by unveiling the CONCACAF Champions League banner and putting the gold badge on their shirt. This is the day that Seattle really proves themselves as the biggest club in the <laughs> United States. And they are in t- t- in, in some respects, uh, but then they lost it home to their rival. And in a fashion in which, you know, the first goal comes from just a simple counterattack, Portland getting forward. It's a great ball from Eric Williamson to kind of lead the attack and a great finish on the back post from a good ball from Sebastian Blanco by uh, Nias Gota of Portland. And then uh, in the second half, there's a second yellow card, Jackson Reagan picking up two in very quick succession when you consider it was late in the first half, early in the second, and then Portland just runs away with the game and... It kind of leaves you wondering, you know, is Portland now going to use this as a springboard towards the end of their season, and is it going to be completely uh, clean sailing for Seattle? Just because they do have a couple of key injuries in the center of midfield, in Joao Paulo and now Obed Vargas, who picked it up uh, in the under twenty world, the under twenty championships in CONCACAF. They kind of need another midfield player right now. It's not uh, you know, completely their roster is locked in and and everything is fine now. They probably have a little bit of work to do to solidify that central midfield.
0: Yeah. I think we all sort of assumed that Seattle, once they were focused entirely on the MLS league season, would vault up the standings very quickly. And to some extent they have. You know, they've been back in playoff contention, but every once in a while they have these aberration games where it sort of falls apart. And maybe that's just the nature of MLS and the chaos that we often see in this league. But I'm not yet ready to say that that I think Seattle's going to finish the regular season in the top two or three of the West. I think they'll qualify for the playoffs. They're a good team as long as they don't have any more significant injuries there. Um, Kuto Hernandez makes his debut, one of these new Uh, transfers coming into the league for Columbus and scores the winning goal. Tremendous comeback for the crew to win 3-2 at Chicago and increase the misery (laughs) in Chicago. Um, Nice debut, Cucho.
1: Yeah, yeah. And he came on at 2-0 down, and then Derek Etienne Jr. got a pair of goals, and I'm following that game during a lightning delay in Orlando City and Inter-Miami, and... It's like, wait, Columbus is really going to do this? And then it's very rare where the narrative pays off in quite that way. Where Columbus, were a team that have really struggled at times. They were fairly languid to watch. Uh, they just needed someone to play up top. Jossi Zardes uh, clearly had a you know falling out, or Caleb Porter just decided want to move on. Thought Miguel Barry was the answer. He wasn't the answer, and as a result, they've gone a half a season without really having dynamic attacking options. And then Cucho Hernandez comes in and, you know, first go, scores the winning goal to complete a 2-0 comeback. And now Columbus is a point off the playoffs with games in, hand, uh, games in hand on the team above them. And Chicago Fire, who could have used a home win, are now rock bottom of the Eastern Conference again on 17 points. If they won the game, they'd only be six points behind Cincinnati. It's just the nature of the league. You're never really that far away from contending. But that's a really tough loss for the Fire to take. And uh, for Cucho Hernandez and Columbus probably the beginning of a run uh, to get them going into the playoff places.
0: Well, it is interesting. Columbus has a positive goal differential on the season and is below many teams that have negative goal differences for the season, which is always sort of a suggestion that a team in Columbus's situation could move up the standings and might finally start getting results to match what they're doing. But we'll, we'll see about that. And then Hector Herrera makes his debut coming on for Houston in a pretty wild game, 2-2 against Dallas, and maybe at least the suggestion that the fan base in Houston might be waking up.
1: Yeah, there was a good crowd on hand at, uh, at the PNC Stadium for that game. They have uh, a rivalry match on Tuesday away in Austin, so uh, that'll be a really fun game to watch. I should be calling that game uh, for Univision, so I'm really excited for that, but yeah, Houston... Are a team that I actually think have started to lay down some foundations even before Herrera arrived. If you look at, they made their most expensive signing in club history, and uh, Sebastian Ferreira, Paraguayan center forward, uh, who came into the team and has scored some goals, has looked pretty solid. This is a team that is ready to, I think, take a step forward now. Um, they've they've got some pieces in. Herrera probably fills a huge hole in the center of midfield. They're still probably relying a bit too much on Darwin Quintero at his age to really provide some creative inspiration. Hopefully Herrera can help with that. But I think it's a team that's coming along. Probably needs another year and another transfer window of being able to get players in that are difference makers. But yeah, I think it's a good sign and getting that... Late, I think it's the latest ever equalizer in the history of Major League Soccer, 101st minute from Teenage Hedebi, uh to, to get a point at home against Dallas was a really solid result.
0: Do you think Teenage Hadebi, like when he's in his 60s, will still be asking people to call him Teenage? <laughs> uh,
1: I, I believe that that is his given name, so I don't think he has much of a choice.
0: Just wondering there. That's an awesome name. <laughs> and I, I think also, you know, one of the big games of the weekend, MLS. And there were actually some very interesting games. Austin winning 3-0 at, Atlanta and Joseph Martinez sort of going off after the game. Josie Altador, uh, Sort of like refusing to warm up and come and and an issue there clearly uh, in New England with Josie Altador not being happy, um, but LAFC with Gareth Bale in attendance, not playing but there at least uh, beats LA Galaxy three two in a pretty wild chaotic game uh, with a great uh, atmosphere at it, and you do start to feel like. LAFC is, is getting it going and, and may even take this to a higher level than they've already done this season.
1: It's really cool. Uh, for me, I think they are the gold standard club in MLS at this point. Uh, when you look at how consistently they've achieved results, uh, how they build out a solid team and fill it with stars, this is the model now where, you know, even without Chiellini or Bale playing, they still have an incredibly strong team. They're eighteen or nineteen deep as well, which is not always the case uh, for for MLS teams. And Jose Cifuentes, young Ecuadorian who's been a tremendous player, might get some buzz to eventually make that move. Gets a brace. Christian Arango, who's been at times deemed surplus to requirements, given they want to go for a DP center forward, says I. I think I can offer something to this team with a great finish for LAFC's third. They have these spurts where they look absolutely imperious and it's all under a first-year manager and Steve Chirundolo, who didn't have a proven track record as a first-team coach and now have to say they're the favorites to win the Supporter Shield. And what a season they have had so far. And that's before they unveiled Gareth Bale. It's a great crowd on hand at LAFC. He leads the, the 32-52 in the chance after the game, which are great scenes. And they still have more fun to come, uh, even with where they are right now, which is at about two points per game in the Western Conference.
0: One of my favorite moments of the weekend was LAFC's Twitter posting Gareth Bale speaking Spanish. Oh. And not terribly, by the way, <laughs> as a... As a jab, I would guess, to the Spanish media who relentlessly criticized Bale for not speaking in Spanish when he was living in Spain. And, oh, he actually can speak a little Spanish.
1: <laughs> that was wonderful. That was wonderful. I mean, you could tell that Bale is probably not too thorough with how things went in Real Madrid, and he's going to have a nice time here in LA.
0: So very much looking forward to that. And, and let's stay at LAFC Stadium, where the bank sold out on Saturday night for the NWSL showdown between Angel City and San Diego, uh, the Chan Classico, as it's being called, Hmm. two expansion teams that have done extremely well this season. And Angel City, down a man, gets the winner late from Claire Emsley, wins 2-1 to over San Diego. And atmosphere was amazing, and they don't even have all their best players, you know, with the CONCACAF Women's Tournament going on. But the, it just felt like a big-time
1: game. Before I, uh, I praise Angel City and the environment, I do want to say the NWSL should take a break. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know why they're playing games right now. There are three major international tournaments going on in the women's game. True. Like, they, they should not be playing right now. However... <laughs> Since they are, and they put a rivalry match on, it was great to watch. And I think it's really cool that I, I imagine there was probably some trepidation about putting an NWSL team in LA, just because if you don't get it right the first time, it can you know, very quickly become anonymous. And you don't want to have a crack in, in Los Angeles and not get it right. And man, have they gotten it right. And Bank of California Stadium, for me, seems to be a place where we talked about this a few weeks ago when I said that LAFC got an environment in on a Wednesday night. If you're one of the six or seven stadiums that does that, that means you are a proper soccer town. And I don't think that if an LA team were playing at the LA Galaxy Stadium that they'd be doing this. There's something about this place and the way that it generates atmosphere, its connection. It's right outside of downtown Los Angeles. It's connected to the city in a way that I'm not sure, not having lived there, um, I don't know about the LA Galaxy's connection, but there's something about its location, its environment. People want to go there in Los Angeles. It seems like a great night out and multiple people are, are, are taking advantage of this.
0: I think it's something that hit me more when I've been actually physically in Los Angeles to get a sense of how people there view LAFC and Angel City as true Los Angeles teams and the Galaxy isn't felt that way by everybody. It's it's viewed as sort of like South Bay, Carson, and it's, it, it is quite a ways south of downtown Los Angeles. And so... That's not everybody. I mean, there's obviously a lot of Galaxy fans in that area too, but uh, it doesn't feel the same, sort of the feeling about the Galaxy that you see toward LAFC um, and, and toward Angel City. So huge credit to that ownership group for getting things right in you know, at Angel City. And, and that was just a really cool atmosphere, the whole thing. Now, before we get to transfer talk, uh, I do want to ask about the blatant uh, ballot box stuffing on the World Soccer Talk poll <laughs> of best soccer commentators. And you're on this list, Chris, with some real heavyweights in the sport globally. And I, from what I can gather, the the Levitard Show army has stuffed the ballot box <laughs> and you are well on top of this extremely scientific polls, <laughs> uh, poll that World Soccer Talk is doing.
1: Yeah. There are many people on that list who I don't even deserve to be on the list with. Never mind above by several thousand votes. Uh, If if it if I guess how I sleep at night is I didn't ask for any of this, as Stu Gots like to say on our show. Uh, I did not. I never encourage people. People found it. I, was, I thought about it. I was like, hey, let me chuck my name out there. But no, I I decided not to. And uh, a few enterprising fans of the show, to whom I am very much indebted and appreciative, have, uh, have voted me towards the top of this thing. So uh, it's nice, even though, as you say, it's not terribly scientific.
0: Are, are you telling me that maybe the World Soccer Talk poll, the audience for that, is not maybe the most representative of, <laughs> no. of people in the United States?
1: <laughs> no, uh, unfortunately not. Although... I'll take the victory. I don't care.
0: Oh, shoot. Uh, So Raheem Sterling um, is in here-we-go mode, credit to Fabrizio Romano, uh, to join Chelsea from Manchester City. And it sounds like he's going to be out in L.A. with Chelsea this week, which is already congregating out there. And I'm trying to figure out how I should feel about this. Um, You know, we'd heard stuff over the last couple years that Raheem Sterling might move from Manchester City. I think he's been pretty good there um and so i'm curious to see how it goes for him at chelsea but like th- sometimes you see these moves and you're like what's the sort of reason for it like it-, it didn't seem like on the field raheem sterling wasn't performing like are there other reasons he was unhappy at man city
1: um we don't know i i do wonder if a player like raheem sterling doesn't view himself as part of a rotation. He sort of is the rotation. Uh, he is. He, he should be playing every single week. Now, I wouldn't have recommended going to Chelsea if you want to avoid that because they have a gazillion attackers in a 3-4-3 system, at least how they've played so far under Thomas Tuchel, and he's going in to compete with Mason Mount and Timo Werner for the moment and uh, Hakim Ziyech for the moment, although he's linked with a move to Milan, Christian Pulisic and Callum hudson Adole and all these attacking players. Um, for me, what it suggests is, is that Raheem Sterling was at Manchester City for a very long time. Um, not... Yeah, not everyone wants to play for Pep Guardiola all the time, having all that demanded of you all the time, although it's not like going to Thomas Tuchel, you're getting a much lighter ride. But sometimes you just want a different challenge. You want something different in your life. And I completely get it for him because uh, he's been in Man City for a long time and now he wants to try life at Chelsea and we'll see if he connects. He's now He'll now have played for three of England's uh, biggest clubs and he'll have that kind of extra experience now playing in London and all of that. But uh, my, my presumption would be is that Thomas Tuchel probably really wants him because that appears to be the Chelsea uh, thought at the moment is let's just get whoever Thomas Tuchel wants and... We'll see how he fits into his system now. Presumably can play as a false nine, can play as a winger. Obviously, he has so much positional versatility to him now that he's played under Pep for so long. But presumably, just wanted to try something new, and I kind of understand that. Yeah, I mean,
0: it has become increasingly clear over the last several days that Ziyech is somebody who is going to likely leave. Uh, You mentioned Milan. Um, And I wonder, you know, for Christian Pulisic, what that means. I think more and more, I just feel like Polisic's going to be a Chelsea player and continue to be one this season.
1: I, I agree. I think I think he'll probably stay there, and he'll get his chances again. That's a, a front three that changes a lot, and so Polisic will have moments where he'll start, he'll be on the bench, he'll start, he'll be on the bench, and that honestly might not be the worst thing in terms of if you're ramping up to a World Cup. That's really our biggest concern as U.S. fans at the moment. If you're ramping up to a World Cup, you want to get some minutes, you want to get out on the field, but it's not imperative that you play in every single game and then you get to the world cup and you're a little bit tired as we're squeezing games into a very small window that might be an ideal situation for christian ballistic heading to Qatar, and then after that uh really the club situations for a lot of players will change because there is no international tournament that's on the immediate forefront of everyone's mind and maybe christian ballistic has a different idea heading into 2023 but i think for the moment the situation probably does work for him
0: it's just interesting this phenomenon during the transfer market of when oh, maybe that guy might leave goes to, oh, this is happening. Mm -hmm. So with Tyler Adams in Leeds, it went from, oh, Adams isn't particularly happy uh, at Leipzig under the new coach, he'd be open to it, to then suddenly there were reports like, oh, this is happening. Yeah, (laughs) And it's always just really interesting how it goes from one to the other because it doesn't always go from one to the other. And what's the trigger that happened there? Like my sense was... That with tyler adams there was something that was communicated decided by tedesco the leipzig coach where he said to leipzig bosses i don't need him yeah and that's when things really got set into motion and also because the transfer fee for tyler adams is a bit lower than maybe i might have expected and lower than the Brendan Aronson transfer that Leeds paid for him is a little interesting, I think. And I realize they're different types of players, but um, I I do think it certainly seemed like this was connected to to Tedesco communicating something and suddenly Leipzig being much more willing to make the sale, even at a potentially lower price than they might have originally thought. But I don't know. I, I just find that whole process kind of... Fascinating. And some of the, like, I loved some of the Twitter stuff I was seeing from insiders over in in Europe saying, Tyler Adams has spoken to Jesse Marsh as if if some momentous thing. (laughs) Tyler Adams and Jesse Marsh speak all the time. (laughs) They're extremely close. They have been since Tyler was 15. They're always exchanging text messages. So it's not like there was some big conversation between the two of them, which is just hilarious when I see some of this stuff.
1: Yeah. And it it seems like Jesse Marsh will try and take Tyler Adams with him wherever he goes in his career, (laughs) no matter what his next stop is, his first call. Hey, Tyler, you want to come? Because I can use you. And that's what's happened here. And like you said, it's constant communication. For me, it seems like the the two landmark moments in those contract or transfer negotiations are, number one, did the coach say he's no longer part of my plans? And number two, did the player say he's not going to sign a contract extension? That's when transfers happen. It would appear somewhere in that intersection.
0: Yeah, no, it's just interesting how that whole thing works and how different it is from sort of the traditional American pro sports where players get traded all the time for You know, and they have no role in it. They often don't want it, and they're surprised by it. And that just doesn't happen in soccer. Like the player has to want to make the move almost always. And so, with like Todd Bowley coming into Chelsea, it was kind of funny for me to hear because he's a Dodgers owner as well. He sort of wanted to explore trades more than we typically see in European (laughs) soccer, which is is interesting. I don't know how serious that that is, but I've also seen some things recently here that they're at Chelsea still considering Serginio Dest. So that would be something to keep an eye on. But again, that's that hasn't passed that threshold yet from, oh, that could be interesting to, oh, this looks like it's happening now.
1: Yeah. And Chelsea certainly at the moment are in much greater need for defenders than they are for attackers. That's why I found the protracted Sterling thing. Their links with Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't really make <laughs> that much sense when you've lost Antonio Rudiger to Real Madrid, Andres Christensen to Barcelona. And really right now, your center back hopes are kind of pinned on 37-year-old Thiago Silva. They need defenders. And now.
0: Yeah, most definitely. So very good discussion, my friend. Thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Azmir Begovic. <laughs> Our guest now is goalkeeper Asmir Begovic, who's visiting the United States this summer with Everton as the club takes on Arsenal in Baltimore on July 16th and Minnesota United on July 20th in St. Paul. Asmir, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Hey, Garan. It's great to be with you. Nice to see you again after all these years.
0: Yeah, likewise. Uh, And we follow each other on Twitter. So I feel like I've I've been keeping up with everything you're doing. I know how much you tweet about the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball. I know you spent years growing up in Canada. Is that how you became such a fan of US pro sports? Or is there another reason?
2: No, absolutely. That's exactly the way. I'm a sports junkie. And obviously growing up in Canada and North America, I fell in love with North American sports and all the leagues. And you know, I've got my teams, but I've certainly um, got opinions on everything that I follow and uh, yeah. enjoy. It and I obviously have a big blast with it, so it's a lot of fun. So thanks for following; I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> Who are your teams in those leagues?
2: Well, my my teams, Grant, are a little bit random. Um, you know, I've got my I've got my Patriots in the NFL. Um, I've got my Phoenix Suns in the NBA, and then of course in the NHL. You know, being uh, growing up in Edmonton, I've got the Oilers, and then in baseball, I've got the Yankees. So. Um, all for different reasons all for different reasons um but those are my teams i have to ask that how do you end up
0: picking those teams growing up in edmonton
2: you're really diving into these things aren't you Uh, so of course in edmonton you have to be an oilers fan so ice hockey is like a religion and um, that was number one sports that was my local team of course um then i think if you're if you're into the NBA, you either see so the Grizzlies were around for a little bit, the Vancouver Grizzlies, but mm-hmm. you know, it was all about the Raptors or most people liked Steve Nash. Um, so whatever team he was on, that's the team you, you followed and you supported. Um, so from my, my point of view, I liked, I liked Steve Nash. I liked the Suns. Um, and then actually I became, I've become really good friends with, um, with Stevie. So I followed him as well, but obviously stayed a Suns fan ever since. And, been a crazy, very difficult, well, decade, but that was the last couple of years have been a lot more, uh, a lot better. So I actually a lot more hopeful. So that's been nice. And then um, Patriots because of Tom Brady. So as, as I was getting into the NFL, uh, Tom Brady was getting coming on the scene. So um, I quite liked him and then the whole Patriots th- thing stuck uh, from there. And then the same with the Yankees. I liked, I liked baseball. Um, never quite got into the Blue Jays. I don't know why. Okay. Um, but I liked um, Alex Rodriguez and Derek Jeter and those guys, and stuck with the Yankees ever since. So there you go.
0: So you're qualified to host a sports radio talk show in the United States, I think. At this yeah, no, I've
2: Still got a few years of playing. Obviously, well, as long as they want me here, I'll <laughs> hang around here, and then I'll come over your way and uh, host a couple of shows.
0: So Everton comes to the U.S. as a Premier League team after staying up at the end of last season. How would you describe sort of what the end of last season was like on the team and and staying up?
2: Yeah, Grant, I mean, I think it was, um, you know, it was a difficult year, of course, for many different reasons. Um, And then especially the last couple of months where where we're really tough on everyone. You know, I think the pressure, the stress of everything, um, you know, was a lot for everyone to to take and have to deal with. But I think um, it's something that we, you know, we can take a lot of positives from at the end of the day. You know, we, we grew together. I think us as players, as staff, as a whole team, as a whole club and i think as a city and, and the fan base you know we really connected and, and got ourselves over that line and uh, and secured safety and it took everyone you know really digging deep and, and putting all the effort in, in, in together to achieve that goal so i think we can grow from it i think we can learn from that experience and uh hopefully be better going forward um uh, because of it all
0: and what have you learned about frank lampard as a manager so far
2: yeah i've learned a lot i mean he's honestly been first class ever since he's walked through the door Um, Obviously took over in a very difficult position, walked into a bit of a fire um, and dealt with it, you know, in the best possible way all season, the way he inspired people, the way he kept people together, the way he got everyone to grow. And, um, And like I said, really, you know, he was the one that connected everyone, all these different parts that then helped us stay up and obviously achieve our mingle. So what sort of things are you excited about for Everton
0: as the new season approaches?
2: Well, I think, you know, listen, every, every season brings, brings a fresh approach, like a positive approach. I think one, um, you know, we're, we're led by a great manager and a great man, and I think someone who's, who's galvanized everyone. has have got a great staff. So I think from that point of view, um, it's, it's, it's a big thing for us. So it's kind of heading the right direction. I think there's a lot more positivity in and around the, the place because of that. So I think that's good. Um, you know, and I think always at Everton, I think we've we've got a quality squad. We've got really good players. I think we've got an extremely big passionate fan base. So I think all these things can, can always make you feel really positive and head into any season, um, looking forward to it rather than obviously dreading anything. So I think we've got all the ingredients to have a, to have a good season, a much better season, and and hopefully a little bit of luck along the way. will go a long, long way as well. So, um, I think all those things considered, we should be, um, you know, looking at things in a positive way.
0: And you're obviously a veteran. Uh, you've been around a lot of years in this sport. Another preseason starts. How do you approach the preseason?
2: Veteran, granted. Like I <laughs> put that. Yeah, don't tell anyone. <laughs> um, no, I approach it as other. You know, as most of the years. You know, it's funny. Like, of course, the years, the years go by, and you know, next thing you know, I'm heading into year eight, year 18, being a professional, which is pretty crazy. So, um, I approach it like all other ones. I'm excited as ever. Um, I love to work. I love to, to push myself, um, grind it out and all that kind of stuff. So um, I approach it as anything, just as excited as I've been any year. My passion for the game and, you know, the work every day, because I think that's the most important. I think that if you're willing to work every day, push yourself every day and try and get better and learn every day, then I think that goes a long way. And I think if, you, if, if you're dreading going into training and you don't enjoy that part, and of course, you're going to make it more difficult. So I th- I'm enjoying it. pre you know, difficult as always. It's always, a, it's always a grind, always a long slog. But, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to the work and I've enjoyed the work so far.
0: Has the Premier League changed in your experience in any ways over your career? Because you've been around it a long time now. And I can remember even in the 90s, late 90s, going to see my first Premier League games. And in those days, it was unusual to have many sort of international cosmopolitan teams and now it's like the most international league in the world it seems like do you have any sense that it's evolving in any ways
2: yeah i mean It really is evolving every every single year it seems to get get better overall every single year it seems to get tougher i mean you look at you know i think when let's go back 10 15 years ago you know i think there was there was there was your top four and then a couple other teams hanging around and then it was sort of the rest whereas you know I think there isn't such such a difference anymore I think there's so many good clubs so many good teams everyone has the resources you know most teams oh, some have more for, for sure but you know everyone has an incredible incredibly talented roster with a lot of quality so every single game now is incredibly tough you know I think before you'd always look at a couple games where it would really fancy yourself but now you know every single game you have to treat incredibly serious and, and that's, that's the evolution. That's the growth of the Premier League. I mean, the quality of players all around for every team, I think the quality of the product, the stadiums, the pitches, I mean, just everything every year seems to go in, in, a, in, a, in, in the right direction and growing in the, in the right way all the time.
0: You've had some interesting stops in recent years. Yeah, you are also at Milan, Milan. Um... Which just won the title this past season. Uh, you're in Azerbaijan, even for a little while. I, what what sort of led to, to those moves, and then coming back to England?
2: Yeah, I mean, in football, it's it can be very unpredictable, and things change in a in the blink of in the blink of an eye, really. So, um, I guess I'll go back. Oh, was 20? I go 2019. I went to Azerbaijan, so three years ago. You know that that's what happens. The business side, it's, you know, teams, clubs make a decision sometimes you're part of the plans and sometimes you're not. And I found myself on the outside looking in and as you have it, uh, it's the end of the window and, you know, random opportunity came up to go to Carabag and, um, you know, I took it. I wanted to go and play. I wanted to experience something different um, while I was playing and in my career. And, I, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I had, you know, time in my life really over there. I met some incredible people, you know, was was blown away by the infrastructure of, of the team and the club, you know, which I didn't expect, you know, and I, again, it just shows the growth of the game everywhere and, how much people value football to have to have that sort of an infrastructure and things in place in in, in a country that people wouldn't have thought of so um, you know I I really still have some really good friends in my time there and I I follow their results very very closely and you know again it it, it was such a positive experience for me Um, and then that led obviously to my move to Milan and again I think it goes to show that if you if you go anywhere around the world now, if you play well and, and do your thing in the right way, then people will, people will be watching. You know, everything's so much more accessible now. And that was, that was again, just another amazing experience. I mean, to be at a club like that, of that stature, I really haven't seen many, many like it. And, you know, obviously had some really good teammates again, made some friends. Um, we had a great run. I think it was sort of the the start with the new era of the Paolo Maldinis, Ricky Massaras, one of my Boban at that time coming in. Mm-hmm. They wanted to bring in certain types of people and players to start that rebuild, shall we say, of the of the club. And obviously, and that that now has finally led to them winning the Scudetto, which is you know, which is where AC Milan need to be. They need to be competing for those trophies every single year. And uh, it was fantastic to see. And then then you know you I go back to Bournemouth, Bournemouth. Um, then I'm back in the plans. You know, they're happy for me to be be there, and obviously I'm happy to be there. And obviously we have, have a good season. And then another great opportunity to come and join a club like everything comes around. So in football, you can never look too far ahead. Uh, that, that That's what it's taught me for sure. Don't look too far ahead. Enjoy, enjoy the present, make the most of it and, and see where it takes you.
0: And is there an update on your international career? Or are you, are you still playing internationally for Bosnia-Herzegovina?
2: Um, no, I've not, never not retired, never retired. I, uh, that's, I find it very difficult for me to, um, to kind of rule myself out and, and retire from, from it because it's representing it's a country. But um yeah, you know, Grant, it's, it's, it's not a great situation over there at the moment. I mean, if, if it's the right circumstances, of course, I'll, I'll always represent my country while I can, while I'm fit and healthy. But at the same time, at the moment, it's just um, going through a bit of a transition and, and, and weird stage. So, you know, I I get to enjoy a few extra days with my family and and, and stay at home, which is also very nice.
0: A couple more questions here with Asmir Begovic. Really appreciate the time. I know at one point, you did play for Canada at youth level before you chose to re- represent Bosnia Herzegovina. Are you at all surprised to see Canada qualify for the men's World Cup and actually win the Concacaf qualifying tournament?
2: Well, no, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm and I had to make that decision in 13, 14 years ago. Now, um, where the situation was completely different. You know, I think at that time soccer in Canada was you know wasn't definitely anywhere near the stage it is now, and and the infrastructure of the teams and MLS teams and the CPL and everything that it has. Um, So it was difficult to see opportunities and I think you had to be in Europe. I think you had to play at the highest level there if you could and if you really wanted to play at the highest level, right? So that's why it was was a footballing decision plus obviously a family decision for me at the time. Um, But I always knew the potential was there and that's why it's not a surprise because the potential was there. The participation, kids, people wanted to play the game. They just obviously had to be given the opportunity to play and play at a good level, and then obviously, now with the growth of the MLS and the, and the teams and the academies and the CPL, those opportunities were not available when I was coming through the ranks. And of course, I was never capped, so it gave me a chance to move, but not surprised at all. And, um, you know, it's just amazing to see. You know, I, I wish them all the very, very best at the World Cup. I hope to do well, I'll be cheering for them. And I hope the growth continues even more. How many more years do you want to keep playing? You know, I've never put a limit on a Grand, honestly. I um, because I think if you put a limit on it, you kind of maybe it's like a ticking ticking uh, clock really. And I, and I've never really put that. I just want to go as long as I can. And while I feel good and as long as I'm wanted and see, see what other adventures are out there for me. But you know, I I certainly don't feel my age. I have to say I um, am able to do everything and still compete with the best at the highest level. And that's what I enjoy doing. And, Hopefully, I can do it for a few more, few more years, and let's see let's see what else there is in store.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a situation where you're playing in recent years with some very elite clubs. Do you have any interest in potentially finishing up over an MLS?
2: For sure, for sure. I've always been open to to opportunities. I mean, I went, like I said, I went to Azerbaijan. I played in Italy. I'm I'm open to everything else. You know, um, never rule anything out in this game. That's that's what I would say. Um, what if the right opportunity comes comes around? For sure, why not? I mean, you know, I guess at this stage, the difference probably from, from five to ten years ago is that, you know, I've got a family, I've got kids and stuff like that. So it's not a decision that I can just take on on my behalf. You know, I think it's it's a collective decision. So we'll wait and see. I've got a year here at Everton. I'm, I'm looking forward to the season and helping this team and this club and in any way I, I can. Obviously looking forward to a preseason trip over to America and, and, you know, getting ourselves ready for the, for the season ahead and, and, and obviously a difficult season, a tough season, which the Premier League's always going to be. But, you know, what happens after that? I, I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, it, things can change very, very quickly in football. Um, you know, obviously, if you are have anyone looking for a goalkeeper in the future, Graham, make sure you, you uh, <laughs> put my name in. But um, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Right. Like I said, I'm enjoying it here. I'm in a great club with some great people and uh, focused on the present. And obviously, we'll see. We'll see where the future takes me. And I know your
0: wife is American. Have you spent a lot of time in the US over the years?
2: Yeah, I've spent a lot of time. Um, she, she's, um, she's half American, so she was born in America. Her dad's American, mom's English. Spent now many, many years over here in the UK. Um, so yeah, we, we have a fond, fondness for for North America. America, we've, we've been on holiday, we've gone travel there for events. For different reasons. So, um, yeah, it's not a huge chore to head over stateside, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an open one. I, I could see it happening for sure if the right thing comes about. Um, but like I said, we'll, we'll see. You never know.
0: Asmir Begovic is coming to the United States this summer with Everton as the club takes on Arsenal in Baltimore on July 16th and Minnesota United in St. Paul on July 20th. Asmir, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Always a pleasure, Grant. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Asmir Begovich as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid
2: subscription. See you next time.